0: This morning's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves Remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is God's Word. Please be seated.
1: Damien mentioned that we wanted to pray that God would bring our defenses down, that his word might come upon us. And it, it's worth reflecting on the fact that this is, this is a doozy of a text. Um, and it's, it's sort of fitting that God gave us the dark morning, I suppose. Uh, it's a text in the shade of blue, right? Uh, as Ecclesiastes reflects on the, the dark side of life. Uh, and this morning, as we think about that, it's, it's worth thinking about what texts like that are meant to do to us. I'm reminded of, of words by one of my favorite authors, um, the remarkable Southern writer Flannery O'Connor. Uh, she said that literature which mirrors society would be no fit guide for it. Um, Literature which mirrors society or simply says what we expect, what we want, what we treasure, what we take for granted, would be no fit guide for us. It wouldn't help us in many way. Or her contemporary, Franz Kafka, put it this way. He said, if the book we're reading doesn't wake us as with a fist hammering on our skull, why then do we read it? We'd be happy also if we had no books, and such books as make us happy we could, if need be, write ourselves. But what we must have are books that come on us like ill fortune and distress us deeply, like death. A book must be an ice axe to break the sea frozen inside of us. I would suggest Ecclesiastes is an ice axe. Ecclesiastes is grotesque. Ecclesiastes makes strange what seems so commonplace in our life. And this morning, as we consider the search for pleasure and happiness, I think we'll find that this text helps us to look at it from a markedly different angle than we otherwise ever would want to. And the first thing I think we see here, particularly as we look at verses 4 to 9, is the reward of happiness, the reward of happiness, As we look at those verses, we read uh, these things. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who'd been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Did you catch the verbs? Made, gathered, built, got. Did you catch the subjects? I, 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 I gathered, I got. I built, I made. What might our words be today if if we were to be as candid as the teacher here? I streamed, I downloaded, I posted, I texted to be sure. I scheduled, I traveled, I attended, I partied, no doubt. We too build networks of friends and a reputation to match. We gather resources and skills so that we can manipulate and control situations. We take to roller coasters and parks. We go on concerts and trips. We live for the next weekend and we seek to make it a greater thrill than the one before. This section describes the way in which we build and we acquire, we consume, and we long for more. Notice verse 9 though. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting that what King Solomon, the teacher or professor can say of himself, is unique, sets him apart above not only those of his day, but those who've come before him, is what is rather commonplace for you and I today. Um, If you have a credit card, you can basically access most of the pleasures of which the teacher describes here. What would have been almost exclusively the terrain of the king and the aristocratic elite, the 1% in that day, way back in the day, is now so commonplace in modern society. It's worth noting that there's a remarkable shift. Our ability to have time for leisure, our ability to travel, our ability to acquire and to consume. You may have to pay for it someday, but you can have it now that is markedly different. And we do well to be alerted by that as we read on, that the ills and the struggles that the king and the king alone can express in a certain way back then are so commonplace, so ordinary today. And that brings us to the second thing, the trouble that's listed here, the vanity of this happiness and pleasure. We see it in the first two verses and in the last two verses, book-ending the section We see it, for instance, in verses 1 and 2. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. That word that we have spoken of in past weeks is vapor or mist, something that seems substantial but dissipates and is shown to be false and fleeting, insubstantial. And he goes on, he says, I said of laughter it's mad. I said of pleasure, what use is it? Speaking of the external show of happiness and the internal feeling of delight, both are are futile. They're useless. And we pick up what he says in verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I'd expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. We read something similar this week. If you've been following along in community Bible reading, uh, on Tuesday we read from Jeremiah 2 this remarkable statement where God says, be appalled, O heavens, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Can you imagine the futility of, in the ancient world, trying to fashion cisterns that in the end prove to hold no water. How frustrating that must be. It'd be like uh, the experience we have of, of mowing back and cutting back the grass and the plants here in Florida only to find in these summer months to come that next week, there they are again, that they've grown back out, that they're assaulting you again, and they demand attention yet again. It's as though you didn't accomplish anything. Why? is pleasure vain. Why why is the teacher so hard on the pathway to happiness by pleasure? Why are these cisterns broken? He says, I considered all my hands had done and the toil I'd expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity. It was like striving after wind. Imagine the absurd image of someone striving, seeking to hug or to grab the wind. That's the absurdity that he wants you to have in mind as you consider the pathway of pleasure to happiness. Why is that? Why is laughter? Why is pleasure mad and futile? I'm struck by the observations of the, the Great Depression-era writer John Steinbeck. He said this, A strange species we are. We can stand anything God and nature can throw at us, Save only plenty. If I wanted to destroy a nation, I would give it too much, and I would have it on its knees, miserable, greedy, and sick. Earthly pleasures and accomplishments, earthly pleasures as a pathway to happiness, prove futile, a striving after win, for at least four reasons. At least four reasons. They don't satisfy... They don't actually provide that kind of uh, closure that we long for. Secondly, they diminish over time. It's never as fun the second time. It's never as good the next year. They're inconsistent. Perhaps you had good plans for this afternoon that involved going outside, playing and exercising, and suddenly things are upended and turned over by things outside your own control. And fourth, you will die the story will end. You can't, you can't outbid death. And so for at least those four reasons, the pathway of pleasure as a means to happiness is going to fail and to be fleeting. Can you imagine an, an investment consultant or advisor trying to encourage you to place your wealth in a fund that isn't going to have satisfactory re- returns, that's going to have returns that diminish year by year, that's going to be remarkably volatile, and that will eventually tank at some point. That's the reality being described here in Ecclesiastes 2 regarding placing our eggs in the basket of pleasure and of pleasure-seeking. And that's the reality even for a Solomon. Isn't it remarkable that it's Solomon saying these things we saw last week, it was appropriate that Solomon of all people would put wisdom and understanding in its place. Even here, he can't help but mention that he maintained his wisdom and he was known as the wisest man the world over. So when he says wisdom is vain, it's not nothing, but because of his wise request, when he asked God, God said, you can have anything you want. And Solomon said, I need to rule a people who are greater than me, and I'm incapable of doing so. Give me wisdom that I might judge well. God was so pleased that he didn't ask for glitz and gleam and superficial blessings that God gave them those to him as well. And so he was rich beyond belief. He was one who had access to every pleasure. We read in the text of first kings 1 to 10 slowly and gradually how he builds his empire and his reign how he develops a reputation and then we see in first kings 11 how it all comes crashing down so quickly broken cisterns even a solomon like teacher has to admit at the end of the day that when you have access to the greatest things it doesn't last and it doesn't sustain your happiness all substance, no staying power. Notice in verse 9, he says something that's really interesting. He's talking about how he's pursuing pleasure and he, he doesn't keep anything from his heart, but he says, all my wisdom remained with me. Isn't that a remarkable admission of the kind of delusion we can fall into? Even a wise person can fall into. All my wisdom remained with me. He says this simultaneously as he says he's been seeking out in unrestrained fashion pleasures galore, and all of these efforts that have taken up all of his life have proven completely futile. Think back to that investment consultant. If they were to tell you to put all your resources, all your money, all your capital, in fact go into debt so that you can invest in something that's not going to return well, that's going to diminish, that's going to be volatile, and eventually will tank. If they said at the end of that story, but I was wise throughout it all, what would you think of them? I know what you'd think. You'd go write a bad comment somewhere on a website responding to their care, right? You'd have a cranky, nasty response about how they undid your entire financial future. And that's Just the situation Solomon's in here. This teacher is describing how delusional we we can be, that we can think that we can pursue pleasures without it disrupting our wisdom, our better judgment, our maturity. We can think we can live this divided life, that we can pursue happiness here with no cost regarding how we relate to God. But eventually the pleasure's slow and eventually they stop. You kids know this. There are great new rides and they're a delight. And you go and you anticipate and you wait in line and you get there and your heart jumps and it's worth it every last bit. And you say, mom or dad, let's do it again. But eventually, maybe a month later, maybe a season later, maybe two years later, the ride's not that exciting anymore the air is just as humid, and the lines aren't any shorter. And that's the description the teacher's giving us here, that pleasure is a vain pathway to happiness, that it just won't deliver in the end. There's a third thing I think we need to see, a third thing, that Ecclesiastes wants to point to hope for happiness, that there is a, a better way. And it's worth noting Ecclesiastes and the Bible and Christianity aren't unique in identifying that there's a problem here and that we need an answer or a solution. Our our wider society would observe that most of us are are struggling, most of us are unsatisfied, we're yearning for more, and so it's not for nothing that one of the largest sections in any bookstore where you can find one is the self-help section. It's not for nothing that there's so many workshops and seminars. It's not for nothing that there's so many advertisements selling you on more. And the people are always smiling. Our wider society would would tend to say that the reason you're not happy is that others are infringing on your pleasure. Mom and dad are looking down their nose at you. Your religious community, your church, it's cramping your style. Society at large is, is really making things unfavorable or uncomfortable for you. And so the the way to enjoy greater pleasure and happiness is the pathway within. It's, it's the way of journeying into being what you want, others completely forgotten of self expressiveness of shirking culture's demands and and simply identifying who you want to be and what makes you happy. But we can observe what a century ago Sigmund Freud said about this. Freud, of all people, said, Our so-called civilization itself is to blame for a great part of our misery. We say that. And we say also that we should be much happier if we were to give it up and go back to our own primitive conditions. I call this amazing. Because however one may define it, it's undeniable that every means by which we try to guard ourselves against menaces from the several sources of human distress is a part of the same problem. Do you get that? Freud is pointing out that the race within is a a race to someone who suffers all the same problems as those outside. That we're not somehow going to find greater pleasure under the sun by racing deeper down and within. And that's why it's so remarkable that Ecclesiastes points in a very different direction. We've got to jump ahead, but in chapter 13, you finally have words of hope, words of a different way. If all of Ecclesiastes beforehand is describing life under the sun, life in that dark blue hue, like it is this morning, life apart from God life simply on our own, then it's in chapter 13 that we finally see a different way and perhaps a new hope. We read in verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. You catch that? He doesn't just want to speak truth and he doesn't just want to speak uprightly, but he sought to find words that would delight us. In other words, the problem with all these varied pathways or searches for happiness isn't searching for happiness. It's searching for happiness in the wrong way. It's searching for happiness here under the sun, apart from God. We can read further in that chapter. Begin saying this, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you'll say, I have no pleasure in them. Remember also your creator. I think that's a remarkable prompt. We talked last week about how the chapter ends in calling us to fear God and keep his commandments, that this is the end or the goal of the matter. That chapter begins, remember also your creator. The answer to our insatiable desire for more Is not to search for the newer model and it's not to dive deeper within, it's to go further out and to find a more radical solution. You know, when I was in college, I was buying my first car. And I know nothing about cars, but I'd like to think I did what you're supposed to do. I went to the used dealership and I not only shopped around and looked at comparables, uh, but I made sure when I was choosing the model I wanted, a little Ford sedan, that I was able to take it to a mechanic to have it checked out front to back. And I'd I'd like to think he knew what he was doing, but the way the story goes will make you question that as much as I have. So I bought the car, and I I drove off, and I was happy and in debt, and it was great. And it was just two or three months later that the engine started to act up a bit. Nothing terrible, nothing cataclysmic, nothing apocalyptic, uh, but it, it demanded a little tender love and care, more so than I would have expected. Within six, eight, nine months, it was stopping regularly, stopping while moving. This was a problem. And I was seeming to go from mechanic to mechanic month after month when finally, and the amazing thing is I was about three mechanics in at this point, someone pointed out that this little Ford sedan somehow had a Mazda engine in it. And I'm no expert, but things don't go well when you've got a Ford car and a Mazda engine. They're not meant to work together. They're not compatible in that way. And what I discovered, with a good bit of time, stress, and money invested, is that I could put as much effort into sprucing up that Mazda engine, making sure it was well oiled, making sure it was maintained well, that it was in every inspection, that all the various parts were new and fresh, and still, six months later, I'm going to be back with the car stopping while running and being towed to the mechanic. What was necessary for that car to be fixed was not finding newer updated parts of the same sort, but rather the radical work of taking out that Mazda engine and putting back in a Ford engine what it was designed to run on so that it might actually function appropriately. I think we live that way often. We were made, we were designed to walk in a garden with God and amidst all the other good things, all the other wonderful blessings to find our hearts satisfied in God. And somewhere along the way, we got the idea that the Mazda engine would be a good idea. We got the idea that there would be things apart from or other than God that would fill us up and satisfy us. And typically, if you're like me, your response when you realize you're doing that is simply to seek seek out a new peace or to get an oil change, or to upgrade it, but to maintain the same strange engine, which eventually will frustrate, which surely will fail, and which will be costly to you and those around you. And what's absolutely essential, according to the professor here in Ecclesiastes, is the notion that we have to get the original engine back. That life under the sun can't be gimmicked and strategized, It can't be fiddled out and finagled. It can't somehow be souped up and supersized. That it is death. And that the only life we have is above the sun. The only life that actually delivers is a life that fits what we've already been called to worship with this morning. That last line that was read from Psalm 119 verse 37. Turn my eyes from worthless things. Give me life in your ways. Remember your creator. Fear God. There is a a Christian vision of happiness and of pleasure, of joy, and of satisfaction. But as we read the Bible, we find that it's not circumstantial. It's not based on having the newest, the latest, or the most popular. It's rather based on being with God. We see the psalmist in what's perhaps my favorite verse in the whole Bible, saying, you show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what it means to listen to and to Own that prayer that God would turn us from looking at worthless things and that God would help us to find life in His ways, that we would know that there is pleasure forevermore and there is fullness of joy, greater joy and longer lasting pleasure than can be found anywhere else, that God is not a stoic miser or a Scrooge like parent, that God is the one who originally designed us to run on the right engine. And that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not called to somehow turn down our desire for affection and satisfaction, but to orient it and direct it, to open the windows up and to look to sense God's favor and kindness from on high above the sun. And we see that pictured perhaps nowhere else as well as in the table we're about to come to. As we come to the table, we see that the great gifts of food and drink are taken and transfigured, that they're used to illustrate not just the satisfaction that our stomachs and our taste buds feel in God's kindnesses of this day of daily bread, but that they actually, by God's grace, are a means of enjoying the gift of heaven, the bread of heaven, the fountain of living waters, the one who comes and dines with us, who longs, as he told his disciples in John 15, that their joy in him might be made complete. So as we go this day, as we think about the remarkable access we have, the remarkable sense of control we often feel in pursuing pleasure, in doing it better next time, in getting more tomorrow, in having a better year this year. May we always remember that shy of changing the engine, short of looking above the sun, we will always bottom out and wind up in the mechanic shop. But that there is another way. We can remember our Creator and we can fear God and we can ask that He would take our feeble, frail hearts that he would turn them from looking at worthless things that we might find life in his ways. Let's pray and ask him to do that for us. God, we thank you that you sent your son. We're mindful that Jesus was tempted to look at other things and better paths. And yet he endured the cross, despising its shame for the sake of the joy that was set before him. He found his happiness in you and he willingly sacrificed himself for us. And we are overwhelmed. Our hearts are drawn up with with great comfort, with great inspiration. And we pray that by your word, you would strengthen us. We pray that by your word, you would direct us. We pray that by your word, you would draw us out of ourselves, that we might surrender before you and others those worthless things that we so focus on and that so distract us from you. We pray that you might, by your word, Make us to know you as the only thing that satisfies, as that which is tastier, that which is more filling, that which is more satisfying than anything else. And so we pray that you would be our God and that in Jesus we might be your people. For it's in his strong name we pray, amen.